Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley and the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. Without sex, pretty much none of us would be here. And yet, merely talking about the thing that brought us here makes many of us squirm with discomfort. We're told it's not polite to talk about it. It's taboo. And we can even feel shame about it and not allow ourselves to know who we are when it comes to our identities or preferences. As a result, that thing we don't talk about becomes kind of a secret black box that is unknown. Yet if we're willing to open that black box, look at its contents without fear or judgment, it's pretty fascinating. And that's one of the reasons I'm so happy to have my guest, Ross Bennis, talk about it on this episode. Ross is an accomplished journalist and author of such books as The Sex Weirdopedia and The Sex Effect. He shares some lesser-known secrets about sex as they relate to individuals, cultures, history, and so many other areas of life. So listen in as Ross and I discuss lesser-known sex stuff. Ross Bennis, welcome to Super Psyched. Oh, good to be here. Thanks for having me, Adam. I loved your book. Actually, two of your books that I've mentioned, Sex Effect, as well as the Sex Weirdopedia, which is probably one of the best titles. I hope I haven't botched it. And your <laughs> TED Talk, phenomenal. Everybody go out and listen to the Sex Effect or read it. And Sex Weirdopedia, so much fun to read. And of course, your TED Talk, just very, very informative. Before we even get into some of the myths and some of the odd facts that you unpack that can really improve all of our lives, how did you get into this subject? Well, as I've said before, sex is my passion. So it just developed from there. Yeah. And as I look over your right shoulder, I see a crib, which implies to me that you are expecting shortly. Yep. Just in a few weeks. <laughs> it seems timely to mention it is why all of us are here even though we might not want to imagine our parents engaging in that act those few times that they must have done it in order to bring us and perhaps our siblings to life. But uh, thank God they did. And one of the things that we were also talking about offline was, you know, the importance of maintaining your passion, even after all of the calamities that involve birthing and the aftermath of children and just how important it is to keep that thing alive. Well, it's appropriate that you brought that up too, because the sex weirdopedia was actually dedicated to my parents boning. Oh my God. So it's all coming full circle. And I loved it that AJ Jacobs in the sex effect who you had right your forward mutual friend of ours and just phenomenal human being and acknowledged that fact as well in that forward. So that's just great. Let's just talk about some of the sex facts that you've come across. It's almost like AJ did that book on reading the Encyclopedia Britannica and writing about arcane facts. You have done something kind of similar in the Sex Weirdopedia by finding arcane and bizarre aspects of sexuality and various ways, whether how they appear within the context of culture, religion, and just our general behavior as well as history. 
What are some of the facts that give you the most delight that you still kind of either laugh about or have found in some way, shape or form edifying? Well, one fact that I found very strange and I'm Catholic and I thought I knew a fair amount about Catholic history, but I was blown away when I learned that the first canon of the Nicene Council or the Nicene Creed was made where Catholic doctrine began to be formed was about preventing men who had castrated themselves from becoming ordained priests. I guess there was more guys cutting their junk off back in the day than I realized were. I believe it goes back to the church doctor origin who made himself a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He took that phrase a little too literally. And I believe some other men must have as well that when these guys gathered around and started making church bylaws, they said, all right, if you went and cut your junk off, you can't rise to a leadership position. Wow. And you also devote a fair amount of time to talking about people cutting off their junk in various shapes and form. The castrati who sang, the people who were eunuchs, kind of like in Game of Thrones, if you remember that particular gnarly, very Machiavellian character. There's a vast amount of content around that phenomenon, which is a terrifying one. Oh, yeah. One of the most academic books I read in my research was called Eunuchs in Antiquity. And it went over like how there were all these reasons that people were castrated. And it was often due to this fear of you don't want to put someone in a position who can have kids because they're going to give their kid an unfair advantage. You don't want this military leader in our society to be able to sire a family because they're going to do things that are in their family's interest over Mm. our society. So we're going to put a eunuch there. The castrati thing was more for they were discriminatory towards women, but they wanted high voices. So if you castrate a boy before goes through puberty, his voice will stay higher than it would as an adult man. And they use them in the opera. I believe they found out much later, it was much easier to just let women have those roles (laughs) than to castrate a bunch (laughs) of young boys. Oh, thank God for that. And there's an entire book dedicated to this. This is amazing that somebody actually, though, spent an entire book delving into this. Let's pivot, though, for those who... Oh, yeah. There's all, there are other things in other the, things the books to talk about. So let's talk about some of the other fantastic findings that you found in your research. Sure. One thing that was very interesting to me was how the U.S. military's discrimination of gay people ended up promoting gay visibility. So one example is... Back in World War II days, people would get a blue discharge if they were suspected of engaging in homosexuality. And the cities where many of individuals were discharged were on the coasts where they would be sent out to go to war. And so that's like San Francisco, New York City, places like that. And when someone got a blue discharge, mind you, a lot of these people are coming from places like where I'm from in the middle of the country in small towns where there's not a lot of acceptance, especially in the 1940s. Instead of going home and saying, oh, I got a blue discharge because they believe I'm gay, they would just stay in those cities. And that's how districts like the Castro and Chelsea exploded in population and became big, visible neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. It's due to a discriminatory act by the military. Totally fascinating. And you also talk about how neighborhoods, as you refer to them, have become really, really good places to live. Oh, yeah. Very expensive. If you can buy property in Chelsea or Castro, you're doing much better financially than I am. Yeah, I would love to live in one of those areas, but I cannot afford it. 
And as a person who was born straight, or as I'm told in the Castro, a breeder, there is no place I'd rather be than in the Castro. I feel it's totally safe there. It feels like there's so much acceptance. Everything is beautiful. The restaurants are the best. And it's very walkable and (laughs) totally the first place I ever took my newborn son, partially because I celebrate that neighborhood. And it's the place I bring anybody who's from out of town first when we go to the city because I'm an ally. I love the LGBTQ plus community. And there's something about the freedom and the fact that virtually everybody there has had at least one profoundly introspective moment about recognizing that they were stigmatized and having to come to terms with that. So they seem like very psychologically evolved people on average. I know that's a broad brushstroke, mm-hmm. yeah. but fascinating that the military actually had a hand in creating those neighborhoods. You talk also about the fact that schools and societies that really provide strong education and well, I'm forgetting the term, but there's a term in substance abuse that talks about diminishing the possible negative repercussions of use. And it seems that by providing education and by providing realistic safeguards, mm-hmm. people are more likely to engage intelligently. And I was wondering if you could unpack that a little. What happens in the restrictive societies versus what happens in the societies that are perhaps more realistic? Well, in restrictive, I guess you could use like abstinence only education as a proxy of a society being restrictive on sex or sex education. There's not great outcomes, more teenage pregnancies, more unplanned pregnancies, often higher rates of STDs. By not talking about it, it doesn't really help anyone because sex is a basic human need, urge, like people are going to have it, whether or not you say they're having it. And so suppressing the expression of it or the discussion of it just drives things underground and it leads to riskier behavior oftentimes. So if you had a more comprehensive sex education, you would find less STDs. You'd probably find the pregnancies are tend to have a higher rate of them being planned or something that people wanted. So you tend to see that in rural areas where I'm from, the teenage birth rate is way, way higher. My brother had a kid when he was 18 and it wasn't really that unusual where I'm from. Which is relatively conservative, I'm guessing. Yeah, very, where, extremely. Where from? Brainerd, Nebraska. There we go. And the term I was looking for was harm reduction. That is the mm. term that's kind of going through the psychological literature that not expecting pure abstinence, whether it's substance use or sexual engagement, but trying to make sure that harm is reduced. And one of the things that we know is that shame is a big player in how we are wired in our brains and that shame causes us to retract and contract and not share when we might be engaging in something bad for us. And it's kind of shame is I feel bad for who I am versus what I did, which is if I feel bad for what I did, that's more on the guilt spectrum and that we're more likely to be informed by the cognitive dissonance of guilt than we are about the covering up through shame because we feel so bad for it and we never tell anybody. And if you can't feel it, you can't heal it. And if what we don't talk about will reverberate in our head like a rock in our shoe. Let's talk a bit about some of the other great myths around sex, because there are so many myths. And unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation, even by well-intentioned, perhaps, or maybe not so well-intentioned folks in various social media. 
these days, what are some of the myths and what are the realities that sure. are commonly? A lot of times you have to just take note of, I guess, who's giving you statistics or the study, if they have like a slant that they're trying to push. But the idea that the divorce rate in the United States is just continually climbing every year. It's just going up, never been worse. We're way over 50%. Most marriages <laughs> fall apart right away. Heard this sort of sentiment totally. many times in my life. And then the data shows, well, you had a huge peak a few decades ago because the laws were loosened and no-fault laws were introduced in more states, for instance. So you had a lot of women escaping marriages that were bad that they couldn't get out of. And divorce actually is a little bit lower right now than it was at its peak. And perhaps you could argue we still have too many people being divorced, but it's not 50%. And I don't even have great stat on it because we don't have a centralized place that tracks it. But it's trending downwards and the perception is vastly different. It, we believe erroneously that it's trending upward. One of the things I heard on a great TED talk by an Australian psychiatrist, so I'm taking it to be true, is that perhaps in certain areas, people are marrying later. And he attributed marrying after 30 as increasing the likelihood of a sustained marriage. Oh, yeah, it's uh, a huge... That uh, crossing yeah. that threshold, yeah, so that, that you're nodding on that one. Oh, yeah, I guess you'd say the reverse. It's like probability that you split up is so much higher if you're married like before you're 23. If you're married at like 19, the probability of that marriage ending is way, way higher than if you know someone got married 10 years later. For sure. And I'm so grateful that I married on the later side. It was a really good call because I really needed to know who I was before I could make such a massive decision in which I would be betting my future, so to speak, that this will be the right decision. I think about Annie Duke wrote a book called Deciding in Bets. And we're basically, every time we make a decision, we are placing a bet on a thing. Yeah, I think to give you another myth. So in context of AIDS in, in a few African countries, so a lot of sociologists just assume that a disease transmission is related to poverty or to poor education, things that are associated with being low on a socioeconomic status. Because more often than not, that is true. If you have less education or you're poor, more likely than not, a lot of times you're going to unfortunately be victimized worse in public health crises. We certainly saw that with COVID. But in this instance, this was just sociologists extrapolating a theory and forcing their conclusions to fit that theory without looking at the data. Because some countries like Uganda actually had much higher HIV rates among wealthy residents and educated residents. And that's because those were the ones who attracted the most sex partners. Like a guy who had three wives and five girlfriends on the side and who was doing really well for himself was way more likely to get this disease and transmit it than someone who was poor and because the poorer person was less likely to have multiple sexual partners. And it led to a lot of money being wasted when you're misattributing the cause. They're trying to solve for all these other really important social problems, like lack of education and poverty and other health issues. But they should have been addressing getting the people with the most sexual partners to just wear protection and reduce the number of people you're with not because of stigma, but because you're in an epidemic and the disease is highly transmittable in its early stages. What a crucial piece of information. And I would think that the likelihood for myths to circulate about sex would be greater than other phenomena. And just a hypothesis I'm having, 
I would definitely say it's the case. And from this book, just those few examples I gave you, I had a few conservative people email me. They weren't too pleased with my presentation of the military's being a big vehicle for gay rights visibility through its terrible homophobic practices in the past. And I had a few liberal leaning academic types who didn't like my criticism of the African AIDS issue because they just wanted to continue to assume that it was poverty related and that it could be treated in some of the same ways that it was treated in ways like the United States where the epidemic was concentrated among drug users and gay men primarily in its early days, whereas in these countries required a much different approach because it was 15, 20% of the entire population sometimes. Almost as if the same phenomena that may occur in a drunken state at a bar when somebody's considering a sexual partner and perhaps behaving recklessly, when they might actually be very conscientious about other areas of their life, appear to apply to sex in a non-bar, non-drunken context that people don't see sex for what it is, that there is something obfuscating people's ability to really lean into it. And I'm just wondering, what do you imagine it is? I mean, if sex is as normal as our respiratory function or cardiological function (laughs) or any of the other functions that our body has that we can be quite scientific and accurate about, what is it about sex itself that lends itself to these red herrings? Centuries of people being uncomfortable talking about it and (laughs) and like discussing it honestly. And people get like, you're bringing up a taboo subject, just talking about the most basic function of of sex. It's harder to discuss than most other topics are. I think it's even harder to discuss than religion or economics are. It's so polarizing. People have dug into camps on it and the first thing that gets censored when if a book or a movie or something is being censored, they don't care if you murder a million people in your movie, but if you show one boob, look what Janet Jackson, look at the freak out one second of a nipple. And so I just think we are are so like, I don't know what the word would be. It's like narcoticized. Any discussion on it just feels being so much heat with not everyone, but with a lot of people across the whole spectrum. And it's unfortunate though, because the sex is been used to punish people. People have been victimized by it. They've been shamed for desires that don't hurt anyone and and are natural to them, but upset other people for some reason. There's always this push to try to control other people's sexual behavior. So true. And the idea of accurately naming or speaking about it, just the way we would speak about perhaps a restaurant we like, very few people can speak about it in a kind of a cut and dry We've been socialized to not talk about it to that is considered impolite or improper or will make people very, very uncomfortable. And that may be true. And yet when people present in my office telling me that their sex life is pretty flat, the first thing I ask is, how well do you and your partner speak sex as a second language? Can you speak to it as if you were talking about designing your kitchen or something rather unemotional? Can you speak about it in a way that is accurate and non-euphemistic? And the answer is almost invariably, oh my gosh, I would give myself a one out of 10 in my ability to speak sex as a second language. The other thing that you were kind of speaking on was, is that within what you were saying just there, I wish that we could somehow figure out a good equilibrium, a way for people to speak about it without it being kind of the ick factor coming in so that people could feel comfortable talking about such material. And I don't know what it would take for us to get there, for us not to speak maybe with 
maybe too elaborately to the point where we make others uncomfortable, but to strikes that really unusual equilibrium where it's just something that people talk about. Sex and money actually seem to be the two most Mm-hmm. taboo topics that I'm familiar with. And in fact, money may even be more taboo. Oh yeah, will... <laughs> I asked someone their salary and they get all pissed off. Exactly, totally. Ask somebody, you know, their salary and that's not something that's discussed even amongst good friends, but good friends may talk about sex, but maybe harder to talk about the money. One of my colleagues says that we would share our bed sooner than we'd share our checkbook, which I think is a great axiom. So what are some of the pieces of information that you have seen that are most helpful to people in their own lives, perhaps in improving their own sex lives? What are some bits of information that either you think would be useful or that you have seen to be useful? Well, as far as improving their own sex life, that one's tough. I guess I just see people becoming more accepting of the realities of sex's effect on the world around them when they see that they're not the only ones going through whatever situation they're going through and that whatever thing they're dealing with that relates to sex is actually quite common. I know that's kind of vague, but just to use like a small example, one of my friends who is also from small town in rural Nebraska, very tough for him to come out. And he finally did come out as a gay man in college. I saw him become more at ease over time as he met other guys or and women who had come out, who had come from a background like he had. He feel as stigmatized or as much of an other. And I'm sure that's improved his sex life once he's out and free about it. And I don't think it necessarily has to be that drastic, but something that you may be struggling with or that you may feel is like a limitation of yourself, you're very likely not the only one having that. Totally. And you're talking about just being able to be authentic, be okay with yourself, both internally, as well as in relationship with others. And I guess maybe one of my knee jerk reactions to that question might even be that in the previous question, for that matter, might be something akin to wouldn't it be nice if good friends could share openly what they're into or who they are just in a safe environment. And there could be appreciation for the difference because one of the things that Kinsey has from Indiana University and found is that our sexuality is as unique as our DNA, that one guy is into one thing and another guy's into another thing. And Oh yeah, just look what's on the internet. Every interest is there. Right. And being okay with it, you know, as long as it's not harming anybody or violating anybody's else, just recognizing, okay, this is what I'm about. Yeah, if you're into furries, just find your community. Go for that, it. Totally. And that's, that has been of great interest to me. Like I can imagine realities that may be quite distant from my own. I haven't been able to quite lasso in the furry one. What do you understand about the furry phenomenon? That is a really interesting one. And I don't know a whole lot about it, but yeah, I definitely know people are, are into <laughs> totally. it. Well, and the, there, there was a thing that happened last year where a state senator in my state fell for a hoax and said that kids were coming to school dressed as furries and they were demanding that people treat them as like cats or dogs or Pokemon or whatever the costume is. And I think people realized the issue wasn't furries. That's actually fine. The issue is like you're just making up stuff and projecting it onto what you think this thing is. Can you unpack what is a furry? Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, and that doesn't necessarily have to be sexual. Just my understanding is 
pretending to be a fuzzy bear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Usually an animal. I don't think it necessarily has to be though. If you want to get in a dog costume and pretend to be a dog and it can be sexual, but it doesn't have to be. And you have a community of people who get in their costumes and you all act out your fantasies and not my thing, but also pretty harmless. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's really hurting anyone, but there is a discomfort and distaste among some people. If you suggest such a thing, they'll say they're like perverted or whatever. And when you think of the things people can be doing with their spare time, especially young people who tend to commit the most crimes, this seems pretty benign to me. For sure. It seems to be relatively harmless. And I certainly haven't heard anything indicating that it is harmful, at least not that I've been exposed to. But speaking of harm, let's go into a kind of a heady concept that comes from early days of psychoanalysis. And that would be a concept called reaction formation. It's when we have difficulty with something that exists within us and we project the opposite externally. So we may say, gosh, I'm largely straight, but on the Kinsey scale, where I don't recall if it's one is completely gay and seven is completely straight, but most of us kind of fall somewhere in the middle, even though we may lean that direction, at least many of us have a slightly gay side, might see Brad Pitt and be like, oh my gosh, he's hot, but I'm actually into women. But I don't like that part of me that noticed Brad Pitt. So I'm going to hate on the gays. And that's mm. a reaction formation response, as I understand it. And sometimes you may recall many years ago, there was a senator from, I believe, Idaho, who was very adamantly anti-gay, or there might be a preacher who is preaching anti-gay material, and lo and behold, they both engage in gay activities. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that phenomenon, projecting out the polar opposite, kind of as you were saying earlier, of what exists inside you because of that discomfort. There's endless examples of, you call them closet cases, I guess, of the biggest opponents of LGBT rights being actually not straight themselves. I think Roy Cohn, the infamous lawyer, McCarthyite, would be like my textbook definition of that. If any of you haven't seen Angels in America, the HBO miniseries, go check it out. But there's often a side of people themselves that they don't like, mm -hmm. whether it's their religiosity or their background. Maybe they come from humble beginnings, but they don't want to admit that. They want to pretend like they've came from a a higher class society. And the sexuality seems to be the most pertinent case of that, where something that defines you or that is a part of your identity, part of your everyday life is something that you just can't live with. And I don't know why it's so much more intense with sex than it is when people reject their religion or their education or their hometown or whatever it is, but it is extremely intense. And yeah, it doesn't have to just be with gays. You know, if someone came from like a Mormon community and discussing the polygamous aspects of that society can be very uncomfortable. Yet most societies haven't been monogamous throughout human history. But I think a lot of people are conditioned to try to want to belong or want to be whatever the majority is, whether that's straight or middle class or monogamous or a seemingly monogamous. There's like a pressure to conform. And when they are deviant from that, Sometimes they can feel terrible about themselves, depending on who is in their surroundings. But the thing that's considered the norm is often conditioned and arbitrary and according to the society and the time you live in. But that's like hard to think abstractly if it's affecting you on a daily basis personally. And one of my former guests, actually the son of the great Lori Gottlieb, 
is Zach Gottlieb. And one of his, Lori Gottlieb wrote, she was on a previous episode. She wrote, maybe you should talk to someone. And her son says, we can't heal what we don't talk about. And as I hear you talking about this, and I'm thinking about that paired with another former guest, Dr. Stephen Hinshaw, who writes actively about stigma and how I think that so much of what we're talking about right now is how we are socialized to conform. We're socialized to be accepted because not so long ago, if we were cast out of our tribe, it meant our certain death. And so whether we're talking about polygamy or a sexual practice that we feel shameful about, or even a kink may express itself in really nasty ways. So some Um, evolutionary psychology, kind of. For sure. And I'm wondering, let's talk a little bit about other kinks. What are some of the interesting kinks (laughs) that maybe people might not know about that actually exist and maybe are a thing? And maybe some of the listeners actually kind of in a quiet moment will say, oh, wow, I kind of resonate with that. But what are some of the things that people might get turned on by, but they might not want to necessarily acknowledge? Yeah. So I would recommend people watch the TLC show, Strange Sex. I'm not sure where it's streaming right now, but it used to be on Netflix years ago. I'm sure you can find clips all over YouTube. And it's like exclusively about this. Let's just hear just a brief taxonomy of some of the things that exist. One of the more interesting ones was balloons fetishes. Balloons Uh, fetishes. Yeah. Blowing up balloons, just popping a balloon can make someone really excited, possibly even make them orgasm. Wow. Rubbing the material on your skin, just being around them and bouncing them around. There are balloon fetishists. What's another one? That is awesome. Uh, that is, fantastic. you know, some are pretty common, like cuckolding, but there are even services where I feel like you take that to another level and you like pay someone to bang your partner in front of you. So it's one thing to be cuckold and maybe have someone you meet on Tinder or in your real life do that. But to like have almost like a, I want to call it a prostitute because you're doing it for the other person, but you're paying someone for a sexual service that you're observing rather than participating in. So that's a thing. I remember that lyric from Prince in one of the songs where he's like, tonight I'd rather watch. And he didn't want to engage. He wanted to watch. He wanted to be cuckolded, I believe. And that is so counterintuitive because what you're talking about as a way to generate sexual pleasure is also not so shockingly, one of the places that hurts the most, it's basically infidelity in action. Yeah. And yet it's a big turn on to a not insignificant percentage of the population. Well, Uh, I like that you brought up Prince. He's the sexiest artist of all time. Oh, dude. I had an article once that was like best Prince songs to have sex to. (laughs) That's awesome. The tough part is like everyone gets mad at you because you don't have like a certain song in there. And it's like, I didn't make the list 200 songs long. Like, (laughs) Like every song, but probably like, would work, you know? Tell me more about Prince as being the sexiest. How did he get that, I think, rather appropriate title? Oh, that's just an opinion. And I just think with his moves and how sexual his songs are and the way he used to stroke the guitar, very, very smooth. And his songs are like extremely suggestive from Cream and P-Control and Little Red Corvette and I Want to Be Your Lover there's a lot of good stuff in there and just it's like just so funky and the bass lines are always good and it's good for keeping a rhythm when you got it there are certain genres and certain musicians who kind of lend themselves to sex obviously Chardet would have to be mentioned here uh-huh. some people might even say brian ferry or roxy music if you're able to go that far back and listen to avalon or boys and girls by brian ferry but what are some other 
musicians who just kind of lend themselves to sex. And then we're going to get it a little more into kind of holding because that's a fascinating topic. I feel like Doja Cat music is pretty sexy. Right on. As a newer artist. I also think of artists that aren't sexy. I would not listen to the Eagles. <laughs> that would probably kill your Des- buzz. Hotel California or Desperado would. Yeah, or Witchy Woman. Great. Probably not going to do it for you. Or Take It Easy wouldn't be the worst. Lion Eyes, bring it back to cuckolding. Maybe Lion Eyes would be good if you're uh, <laughs> wanting to serenade someone to cuckold your spouse. That's really funny. And yet, we have to make room for the possibility that this is our subjective experience that somebody may say, what are you talking about? The Eagles are the sexiest band of oh, all yeah. time. And that's one of the things that I kind of wish that we had like a, a sex appreciation course where we could just see, wow, that's not my thing. But I think it's great. They're into this. She's into this. They are into this. And it's harming no one. Sometimes there can be harm. I'm talking about weird fetishes. I remember there was fat fetishes and nothing wrong with loving a bigger person. But part of the fetish was making someone who is already obese gain weight, being sexually turned on by the weight gain. So discouraging them from exercising and feeding them unhealthily and trying to get them as big as possible to sexually worship. That's like, do whatever you want to do, but I also might not be a good health outcome. So I feel conflicted on that one. That's brilliant. So back to the cuckolding, I would imagine that there could be some pretty significant side effects if people engage in this process of bring somebody home, a paid individual or on Tinder and watch as they ravage their partner, so to speak. I imagine that there could be a lot of outcomes, including divorce. What do you know about this phenomenon? I don't know anything about the statistics on like if it helps relationships or splits relationships. I mean, anecdotally, I've seen people who have open relationships or are into three ways have it go both ways. Sometimes it is beneficial for them and sometimes One partner is way more into it and the other one just kind of goes along because they want to appease their partner. And then the differences in how into it they are only widen as they do it more. And then it ends up becoming a point of friction. So if a couple wants to do that, I think they just need to both sincerely be on page. And if you don't want to do it just because your partner does it, just be honest because this isn't probably going to help you in the long run. But if you're both 100% into it and you've talked it out thoroughly then go for it. Maybe it'll be spice it up for you. I attended a training recently on non-monogamous consensual relationships. And boy, I've never heard of one working. And I know that they must because people like Esther Perel talk about them quite frequently. And it's really entered the mainstream lexicon. And yet I have not seen a single case in which it's been sustainable over time that one party gets hurt, at least, if not more. And I'm wondering, is there anything for people who do want to do that kind of thing that you've heard of that seems to make it somehow last? I'm not sure because I know anecdotally can last, but maybe that's the exception. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems that the ability to talk frankly is a difference maker, according to at least the training that I attended. But boy, it seems like tough hill to climb. Is there anything I should have asked but haven't asked yet? One thing that was interesting in my research, and I'm going to speak vaguely here because I can't remember which denomination has which rules, but there were Muslim women in the Middle East who would rely, some would be Sunni, some would be Shia. Each denomination had different rules on reproductive technologies like in vitro fertilization, and they would rely on each other. Because like one denomination, let's say, doesn't allow IVF, the other one does. Well, if you want to use IVF, you're going to go against your religion's rules. You have to actually go seek someone who isn't of your religion. 
And in your society, it's not the United States, so a melting pot. Someone who's out of the religion is probably just a different Muslim denomination. And so you see like this work around, I don't know if you'd call it cooperation, but it's people going around their religion and relying on each other to help conceive a baby. And I just think it's interesting how religion factors in there, because if everyone was the same denomination and then they all banned it, you would only have people using this procedure who are truly disobeying their religion. But you can have people who are obeying and people who are disobeying working together to have a baby. Marsha Inhorn, the Yale scholar, has some really good studies on this that go further in depth with much more detail than I provided. Totally fascinating. And what I find that seems to transcend these religious differences within sects, and I didn't say sects, I said S-E-C-T-S, sects, is an ecumenical cooperation of sorts, a human cooperation to find a loophole and to assist people in meeting their goals through creative means. And that's actually rather touching that that would transpire in a place where, you know, people who sometimes kill each other due to those religious differences find a way to band together and help each other procreate. That's actually pretty cool. I thought so as well. I like to see examples where people are benefiting from having others of different religious faiths around them rather than it always being a clash. Awesome. Well, my final question for you, Ross, if you had the magical skills to confer upon all humanity, one insight or one skill that would vastly improve the life of the individual and perhaps even those around them, what would that skill or insight be? And how do you imagine it would impact the individual and perhaps even society at large? I wish people were able to see the times when they think they're in the wrong in a social situation, but they're not actually doing anything wrong. So we've been talking about sex. People often putting so much guilt on themselves, so much pressure on themselves because they think that whatever they're doing, maybe it's sinful or it's bad for them. And if they could step back and see like, no one actually cared that you did this thing and it didn't end up actually affecting you. You know, you take more of the chance and live life a little more freely. There was a lot of social conformity and I feel like people thought they would do wrong if they went to a different religious service or they did have sex before marriage or they moved out of state. All these things that probably seen as pretty benign in a place like Silicon Valley or in New York City near where I live now, but that I feel like held back people who are living in those areas. And I wish that they could see if you did go and explore your sexuality or you did move or you did do these other things that you don't owe anything to anyone. You're not like hurting society by doing these things. You're wrapped up in this guilt for no reason. And I feel like it's impeding you. This is kind of specific to some people I know. Totally. And I'm just going to kind of finish with this idea about the rigidity with which we treat ourselves that causes us to behave in a manner that's inauthentic and doesn't allow us to be real with who we are at various stages. I think of David Bowie, another great musician who we've sadly lost, who was willing to go through changes over his life. And I think many people live under this belief that they must be one thing for good. And I think that when it comes to integrity and various values and virtues, those are important. But when it comes to perhaps going through various phases, I can imagine a person in high school saying I'm bi, in her 20s saying I'm straight, and at some point saying, I think I want to close out gay and really just go through a various phase and be real with that. I also imagine that those could be harmed by that perhaps, but the willingness to listen in to ourselves, I guess, is what I'm driving. Yeah. And what I'm just trying to get across is like to not 
let your parents' idea of who you should be or your community's idea of who you should be or your schools, you should be like who you want to be. So you shouldn't mm-hmm. have to do these things just because you feel the pressure because mm-hmm. not doing them, you're not actually hurting anyone. It's just not living up to a ideal that is artificial to begin with. Preconceived template. Yep. Well, Ross, I can't thank you enough for your contribution to the literature in the way that you've decided to represent your voice and in your contributions to our knowledge around sex and for taking time to share your wisdom with my listeners. This has just been a blast. Thank you so much, Adam, for having me on. And good in my pleasure and good luck with what you have around the corner and becoming a father. <laughs> well, thank you. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe.